Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, and the end is near. We can only hope. 21 days until November 3rd, Election Day. That's what we traditionally call Election Day, but many of us are voting as we speak. Millions of people are voting across this country. The final three weeks of this election will be like nothing we've ever been through, and that's not just rhetoric. I know they say that every time around. So let me explain. It is not just that so much is at stake in the election itself, the presidency, control of the Senate, state legislatures. It is also the huge decisions being made between now and the election. Usually, non-electoral politics closes down during the last 40 days. But here it's ramping up. The vaccine, a stimulus bill, and biggest of call of all, of course, is the Republicans began their process of forcing Judge Amy Coney Barrett onto the Supreme Court before Election Day on November 3rd. They may have the votes in the Senate to do it, and if all of the Republicans stay healthy enough to vote, they will get her on the, on the Supreme Court. But what they don't have is the country's support for this warp speed confirmation process. It is our job to make sure that they pay the price of the ballot box for this usurping of power because it's not what the people want, as the polls suggest. If Democrats do everything right during these last three weeks, political historians may say that the Republicans traded the presidency and control of the Senate for a conservative seat on the Supreme Court with a young justice. Red state senators are feeling the heat. Most remarkably, look at Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, Trump enabler and chair of the Judiciary Committee, which opened hearings on Amy Coney Barrett yesterday. Jamie Harrison, my former colleague at the DNC, has a real shot to beat Lindsey Graham and has raised a record $57 million last quarter for that seat. He would be the first Democrat elected statewide in South Carolina in more than 20 years. Graham is pleading for help. The stakes are very high. Winning the Senate is crucial because if the Republicans succeed in embedding their conservative majority in the Supreme Court, the power and responsibility on a series of issues will shift back to Congress. And in many cases, to those state legislatures that Democrats have lost control of. So control of the Senate and control of the state legislatures is control of the right to choose. It is control of the right to vote. It is control of the right to organize. It is the control of the right to push back against these right to work states. I'm not into vote shaming. Each of us does decide, but I am recognizing what is at stake. And I am a believer in voter uh, persuasion, which is what I am trying to do here. This is much bigger than Donald Trump, way bigger, way bigger than Joe Biden, way bigger than neoliberalism. The Republicans have been rehearsing for years for this election. They have been practicing their techniques to suppress, deter, and intimidate voting. They have been recruiting lawyers. They have been undermining mail-in balloting for years in races that were inconsequential because they just wanted to practice. And they have been perfecting their arguments for going into court after the election to challenge the results. They've also been packing the federal courts with conservative judges who hear those arguments. Amy Comey Barrett is just the final piece of their long-term plan to control the courts. This is why turnout matters so much. Close elections are the lifeblood of Republican lawyers. Sam Cedar at the Majority Report says we need an extra 10 million votes so that when the fight gets to Chief Justice Roberts, even he won't he won't want to reverse the popular outcome. 
if one of the many cases that's likely to be played out makes it to the Supreme Court and it has to do with a few signatures were signed or about a mail-in ballot was stuffed, will Roberts tool with the right and, 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 and against a 10 million popular vote? That's what I want to know. It really will come down to possibly an opinion. And is it worth it in the end? I'd go even further. We need not only an undeniable popular vote margin, we need an electoral college landslide, even if some of those states are narrow Democratic wins. And we know what the criticisms of the electoral college are, that the stakes are so high, and that is why turnout matters. The more work the Republican legal army has to do to reverse the election, the harder it will be for them to get away with it. So the polling may look good at the top of the ticket. But polls don't decide elections. We know that. We saw 2016. Counted ballots decide elections. The Republicans are lined up in depth to suppress voters and to challenge their ballots if they do vote. And at the top of the ticket, it's only part of the fight. We are in a progressive moment in history. We have a shattered economy, a failed public health system, a country that knows something is wrong. But to convert that moment into change, we have to have all the levers of power. We probably won't have the Supreme Court. So this is all the more reason we have to win back the White House, the Senate, and as, as many local offices and state legislatures as possible. I'm saying the Democrats. Progressives then have to win over those local seats so we can put pressure on Democrats, so we can outvote them in our own caucuses. Like Pennsylvania, which is a key swing state, they have an opportunity to win back the House and a growing progressive caucus in that state. This is what is at stake in these next three, three weeks. And we're going to be here with you through Election Day. And we're going to talk about it on this show because we have Harvey Kay, uh, who is back, as well as Napoleon de Legend and Nando Vila. But first, here are some stories at the top of my news feed today. Joe Biden tweeted yesterday that he knows Americans aren't looking for a handout and that he will help them earn the support they need. But as millions more Americans become more desperate to pay rent and provide food, it is time that we ask what's wrong with a handout? Why we can't have a government that provides for its people? And especially because American workers create value for corporations that steal wages from them to create profit for their CEOs and shareholders. We shouldn't think of government as, as a support or a handout for all. It's financial compensation that is long overdue. Every tax cut those CEOs get, every peak performance in Wall Street, their workers should be provided for as well. Trump used a campaign rally to spread new disinformation about COVID-19 and to put his supporters at risk, particularly as it was his first campaign to stop his diagnosis with right after his diagnosis, excuse me, with coronavirus. Twitter flagged a Trump tweet on Sunday as misinformation. That's Twitter itself. The company flagged the president's tweet as misinformation due to its claims that the president had gained immunity to the disease and had no danger of transmission. We have much more to learn about gaining immunity from the coronavirus. And if Trump did more work to, I don't know, fund the FDA or support them, to accept safety guidelines guidelines for a COVID vaccine and to let the U.S. participate in the global community of scientists searching for the cure. Maybe perhaps we would have the information to reject these claims ourselves. But instead, we have to watch a sick president brag about the harmlessness of a disease that has killed hundreds of thousands and that he survived because he has unparalleled uh, access to health care and, of course, uh, his transportation at one of the best hospitals in the world.
The California Republican Party is now being served cease and desist letters as it was caught placing over 50 fraudulent ballot boxes, the drop boxes, all around the state. The signage and the color of these boxes make them appear just like the official boxes. And now Californian officials are saying that this effort supports voter fraud. Voters whose ballots may have been left in a fraudulent drop box are being asked to track their vote using the ballot tracking system online. Meanwhile, Republicans responded to this outcry by blaming Democrats for anti-vote harvesting measures. Let's get this logic right. So they committed voter fraud to prove that voter fraud exists, but then they were caught showing that the system doesn't actually support that. That's some three-dimensional chess. Oh, by the way, it's in California where the Democratic state with a supermajority. So this goes back to my original point. They are practicing. They are practicing. All right, guys, we have a wonderful show today. Up next, we have the one and only Professor Harvey K. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Uh, our favorite chatter, <laughs> that's that's what he's known for in life, is mixing it up on our chat. No, I'm joking. Professor Harvey K., who is a professor of democracy. Uh, he is the author of many books, including The Four Freedoms, uh, Take Hold of Our History, which I think is right behind his shoulder. It's on your upper left shoulder, right up there. Yep, yeah, that's it. That's it. Hi, Harvey. Hi, how's it how going? Long time to talk. I, yeah, it, I was just watching you as well on Majority Report, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what we call meta, maybe. Yeah, right. <laughs> the kids are calling meta. Um, all right, there's so much to talk about because we are, are I, I, I did my opening and I really wanted to kind of crystallize what what is at stake in this election in the immediate future and then really for the long term because um, as you know, we were at this critical moment with a pandemic, uh, what is likely to be one of the greatest uh, recessions slash possibly depressions in history. We're not necessarily feeling it yet or seeing right. it. Um, so without a doubt, Joe Biden is going to inherit a world that uh, the beginning of his campaign didn't didn't despite signs maybe pointing in this direction. Nobody could have ever said directly that we would have this level of a pandemic uh, possibly a pandemic, but maybe not with these kinds of circumstances. So, you know, what's at stake here is the future of our country that is being decided by folks who are, are pretty much set in the past, whether it's neoliberals or the Republicans who just literally want to, like, stack the courts to keep us in the 50s. Yeah. I mean, have we have we been in this moment before with a, with a growing mass of, of leftists that are under the age of, say, 40 uh, who are fighting those in power and like some of them may feel a little frustrated that they can't do anything in this moment. Have we been in this moment before? Well, we've been in a moment of crisis before, obviously. I mean, we could, I, hell, we could go back to 1859, 1860 in terms of the Civil War. And by the way, there are various things that are taking place even as we speak, you know, as we know, which are more reminiscent of that crisis than the crisis that, probably we think of most regularly, and that's the crisis of 1930, 31, 32, the Great Depression, and the fact that we had a president, Hoover, who had a reputation as having been a humanitarian, but couldn't seem to bring himself to harness the powers of democratic government to rescue him, himself and his fellow citizens from the Great Depression of the 1930s, the worst economic and social catastrophe in American history. 
And, and in fact, the pandemic in itself is is truly horrific, and and it's a, a tremendous tragedy. And it's a tragedy because of the inaction on the part of an administration, and even the cultivation of idiots or idiocy, one could say. But it but it's also the case, as and you're right. I mean, we're literally at the edge or the the, the, the onset of not simply this sort of economic crisis of these last eight months, six months in particular, but we're on the verge of what could easily be a phenomenal, and I say that without any kind of goodness attached to it, um, economic and social catastrophe rivaling the, the early 1930s. So, yeah, in fact, I w- as you were speaking just now, I was thinking, well, you know, back in 1988, when Biden first ran for president and plagiarized Neil Kinnock, the head of the yeah. British Labor Party, and was called out for it, basically, which was, by the way, that one time I really liked Joe Biden because I liked who he plagiarized. <laughs> but, having, but having said that, the point is that he must say to himself, why the hell couldn't I have run effectively for president in another time? Because this is a moment where it's not just he's going to be challenged. We're all, go- we're, we're all going to be challenged. And the question is, what do we do about this presidency not simply for Joe Biden, God, not at all for Joe Biden, but literally for ourselves and those who will come after us, because we're at that kind of moment. Yeah. So, I mean, he, there's 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 two vehicles here. There's the Trump vehicle or, is the, or the Biden vehicle. One of them is going to be delivering us our future. Yeah. And we have to decide which one we think we can effectively persuade in this moment <laughs> or we're roadkill. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think many of us are roadkill, regardless. But um, th- I mean, th- there's, there's, uh, it's, it's like a perennial argument now because we did this in 2016 over, over where we pressure and how we pressure a Biden administration, and we talked about this in the majority report today a, a little bit. But this is different than 2016 for for a lot of reasons, other than the obvious, which is the economy and. Uh, collapse and a pandemic uh, killing off hundreds of thousands of people in administration that just like doesn't believe in masks um, or science or thinks that yeah. their supreme leader is is like, you know, has like tiger blood or something. I don't know what they think. He, it's the Clorox, I guess. Um, so aside from <laughs> I those know things, I'm laughing at that, but yeah. whatever it takes to get people to laugh nowadays. Yeah. Um, but I mean, aside from this, you have the, the Clinton machine. Um, they were lining up for administration that that you know to take over from the Obama years, and yeah. we were in a more complacent moment. Even though there were millions of people rising up supporting Bernie Sanders's message, uh, there was a, you know, a decade of of organizing on the ground, but it hadn't hit that 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 moment where I actually think even in the Democratic Party, if you were to do the vote counts, I still think pro- progressives did vote more. Um, it's just yeah. it was just like in the in the general election. It's just they know how to divide and conquer and win. And right. so, yeah, I mean, so, so, yeah. So the, 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 the moment's different, like the pressure points are different. We may not have been able to make the headway that we wanted in a Clinton administration, but but in a Biden administration, He's more malleable. Listen, I'm not complimenting him. Let's just be very, very clear because I can, I'm looking at Twitter. Right. I see you guys. What I'm saying is these. this is the scenario we have. This is the power we have. How do we use our power most effectively for progressives and, frankly, for working people who are, if they're not suffering already, if we are not suffering already, it's going to get much worse if we don't step in. 
Right. You know, as you were speaking, I mean, we've got the the current moment, but I'm thinking also back then to the Clinton moment. But I also want to just say something about back in the early 1970s, and that is that the rise of what came to be called, you know, the, the new right and the war that capital declared on working people, poor people, people of color, and by the way, students and academics and the liberal media that emerges then, it arose in reaction to not only to the, what had gone on during the 60s, what was essentially a democratic surge in the 60s, but their fear, a real fear that more was definitely coming because there was a real assumption that the diverse currents that emerged out of the 60s, which sadly came to be known simplistically as identity politics, that those different currents might well come together in a broad left movement. They had, they really were persuaded that unity on the left was emerging. And, and they got lucky. They got lucky not only because they were very effective in mobilizing massive numbers of dollars, but also because between... The, the, the disaster of the Democrats, the, the literally the falling apart of anything we might think of as the broad left movement, and then out of all of that, the ways in which neoliberalism emerged, we've ne- we then saw these you know 45 or more years of class war and the attack on the rights of workers, the rights of women, and the voting rights of people of color, especially obviously African Americans. So. If we think about then in in 2000, and I guess we're talking 2016, I mean, there clearly was a lot of, I mean, I don't think people quite realize what was going on in the years leading up to the 2016, 2015-16 campaign season. I mean, think back to the movements that were emerging. I mean, the the fight for 15, um, the more, was more Monday already in place, um, the the anti-fracking and anti-pipeline. And I know I'm just, you know, I'm trying to remember the details. But the, And the other thing was we could see the fascination and the kind of the beginnings of a surge against the corporate order, especially finance capital, by the really popular response to Elizabeth Warren's calls for regulation. Yeah. I mean, she really was, I mean, everyone assumed that she could run for president, which was, in fact, to think of that moment, we know that Bernie actually proposed to her running for president. And, and I think you and I both ran into any number of Clintonites whose original animosity towards the left was an animosity towards what they thought would be a Warren campaign that would take away the entitled nomination of, of Hillary Clinton. And uh, sorry, and the gender I, dynamics, too. I mean, it's, that's an important well, factor here, too. Yeah, although the, the, many of the people who, who told me they how much they despised Warren were women, just for the record, okay? Um, yeah. No, I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, but this is, but it wouldn't have been so clear. It wouldn't have been the gender war between, uh, their, their push gender war, make that uh-huh. clear, um, yeah. between Clinton and, and, and Bernie. I mean, that's why I got involved in the Bernie campaign in the beginning. It was like, I suddenly found myself in the midst of, of defending Bernie on, on air and like, from a feminist perspective, and I, I remember just laughing and, and bringing in the fifteen dollar minimum wage and saying, "Why is your Why is your candidate against the fifteen dollar minimum wage? Who do you think that supports the women?" And then I like went through a litany, and suddenly I was a surrogate. So that's how it happens, by the way. Yeah, that's yeah. Not normally. 
No, I'm um, sorry. I had this image of you laughing in the middle of a Fox News show or something. Oh, it was on CNN. It was with oh, Maria CNN, Cardona. Right. There is, if you ever guys, if you want to have fun, go back and look at the history of, of my debates with Maria Cardona. There are like dozens of them from 2016. You know, <laughs> some sorry. a consultant who doesn't disclose she's a consultant for like weapons manufacturers. Yeah. Um, anyways. <laughs> I have nothing to 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 reveal on that in that regard. By the way, I, I'm clean. You're you're a union member, um, yeah. Yep. So let, let's talk a little bit about the Green New Deal because I, I I'm thinking I'm trying to think about what what are the what are the, the 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 policy proposals that Joe Biden cannot run away from because this moment calls for them because he yeah. has to do something. Right. He has to okay. do something. Right. Yeah. And by the way, I want to link what we were just saying to the thing you've now proposed, the question you've now proposed. And this is why I want to do this. Yes, this is a moment you can't run away from it. Absolutely. I mean, he could try to he could try to finagle it. I mean, if, yeah. if he doesn't feel any pressure, he could try. To, how do you finagle it? Well, you manipulate this, you manipulate that you can pass. We know you can enact things that basically amount to a hill of beans. Is that the expression? But here's the thing. This question, which came up in the majority report, and you and I have been going on on about in conversation, this question of what what does the left do, and can the left afford this division where you know significant voices on the left are saying they're going to sit it out essentially in this? But here's the thing: the Green New Deal matters. I mean, we know it matters, and it's also a vehicle for all of us. It, I mean, literally, we're we're both offered a challenge to save our you know, save our planet almost, but also a, a, an opportunity in in essence to make a difference regarding what a Biden Harris administration becomes. Okay, because undeniably, the first instinct on the part of the left, and we've already seen it, is opposition to Biden. Okay, we know we know who those folks are, and then there are the rest of us who are saying. Well, we're, we know how we're going to vote, but we're going to mobilize to go into some kind of oppositional mode. But we ought not to right away assume oppositional mode. OK, let let they may want to think that it's oppositional. mode. I think what we have to do is we have to literally promote. We have to be aggressively promoting the Green New Deal idea. And I think we need to sort of rally around it because it's the best vehicle, one, for making a difference and saving our asses. But it's also the best thing around which to mobilize the other fundamental questions. So, for example, there will be no resurrection, redemption, and rise of a left agenda, a truly left agenda, if we do not do something about this economic crisis and be seen as important to that resolution. And also, clearly, if we do not revive, revitalize the American labor movement, we can write off the future of the left. Because frankly, the reason that Biden and others can generally ignore the left is because the left is not properly embedded and connected to labor. So so, so if we were to revive, I mean, we have to revive the labor movement by reviving state legislatures. We need to have right. not just Democrats controlling state legislatures again, but progressives. And, and I do think that they're actually more susceptible to labor at a local level than um, than at a national level for for local reasons of local dynamics. You know, it's it's the teachers, for instance, in Arizona, right to work state teachers, of course, have been organizing on the ground in Arizona. There's ballot proposals. It is now 
the norm to be standing with teachers. And that's, you know, the largest, that's the teachers, the teachers right. union gives more money to the Democratic Party than any other monies. Um, sorry, and, this, and, and, and we, we know what canvassing is about. We know that most most people who are on the left are not going door to door right now, though it's not out of the question in, in many areas. But it's also the case. Who do you think is manning? The, the, who, excuse me for the male reference. Who, who's who's staffing, volunteering for the the phone banks? I mean, teachers are infamous on the on on the right because they are the folks who go door to door and make the phone calls and those are teachers not just teachers they are teachers who belong to labor unions teachers that belong to labor unions are connected to the communities connected to parents connected to to the children which of course rubs up against the issues of the pandemic and it's an actual access point for us to pressure the Biden administration because the Obama Biden administration and 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 Arnie Duncan were for basically yeah. privatizing schools. Essentially, the you charter know. school movement. You know, um, it, it, it's it's comical now looking back and seeing how openly and aggressively they were taking on unions and the. Yeah. Why would you first off? Why would you decentralize? Uh, not something centralize the DNC and decide to take all money away from state legislative uh, fights? Why would you take? Democratic governors uh, out of office and put them in, in homeland security when they come from states uh, where their right to work options, you know, at the right to work conversations. Um, why would you choose to take on the largest union and contributor to the Democratic Party? Why would a Democratic president make those decisions, especially, especially in the face of an economic collapse? Well, and, yeah. Sorry. And can they get away with that this time? Okay, so and if if I look, I'm a historian, so I like to go back a little bit, a little Please. ways. Okay, no, I mean, and you know very well the arguments of Tom Frank and my arguments, the degree to which Democrats turn their back, I mean, literally turn their backs on the working class, and they did so truly believing the future of the Democratic Party didn't need the working class. I mean, that was their view that, that this was going to be the party of the meritocratic order. OK, this was going to be the party led by the, the, the Ivy Leaguers, basically. And it was going to bring in diverse identity political forces. I mean, that that was the assumption. OK, and and the working class, which was in their minds, the white working class of the Rust Belt. And that's the only time you'll ever hear me use that term. OK, um, that, that they so they turn their backs. But they also fail to consider, and this is now in the Clinton years, the degree to which they still needed. They, I mean, he could never have been elected were it not for the labor movement. Of course. Of and, course. and for that matter, the environmental movement, too. But what did the Clintonites do? The first thing they did is they passed NAFTA. They literally betrayed the very folks who put them in office. And then on and on and on. Listen, we don't need to review the whole Clinton years. Now, the Obama folks... The Obama folks were not that much different than the Clinton folks. It was almost as if it was a dynastic battle that that, ever, that took place between them, as opposed to those who actually wanted to yeah. embrace labor versus those who could care less about labor. So I think that, I think they brought with them a kind of, if you don't call it an ideology, a certain kind of political sensibility, and labor had no place within it. And I think that and they could get away with it. Sorry, let me. I'll just yeah, say. No, no, I, I, I agree. And the way the reason they could get away with it, and I and people get upset when I say this, is that Richard Trumka and the labor movement did not want to take the position 
of a even of a loyal opposition of demanding uh, demanding attention from the Obama administration. And as a consequence, the Obama administration ignored our Wisconsin rising when we when we were stripped of collective bargaining rights as public employees. And and soon enough, the Republicans were able to turn us into a truly right to work state. So and why? Because Trump and the AFL-CIO did not want to be seen as a labor movement going after an African-American led administration. I'm convinced that was the case. They just did not want to do it. So as a consequence, we get we don't get the kind of pressure on the Obama administration that it needed. And and I say needed because Obama had aspirations to be a great president, but you can't be a great president in from the Democratic Party if you are not aligned with labor. They need labor just as much as we on the left do. Well, what, what, what really, I mean, whether it's organized labor or just actual labor, working people, what didn't, didn't, doesn't make sense to me is there is, this isn't rocket science. This is, this is not a theory. This is like basic looking at a population. Yeah. How, why would you exchange millions of voters for a group of people who went to Ivy League? I, I don't understand. It's like the tech sector is a group of donors, yes. And, and I think that's ultimately what it comes down to is they just automatically assume that working people will always vote for Democrats because they have nowhere else to go in their minds, at least pre-2016, and that um, instead of getting money from labor, they were going to go towards uh, the tech sector, the Ubers, the, I mean, if David right. Clough went to go work and be a lobbyist for Uber uh, after he ran Obama's campaign, was in the White House. So there's, there, there is a clear strategic move to completely, over the last 35 years, 40 years, pull away from labor. And not only, of course, it created an opening for for a populist on the right, but it's made it harder for us now to organize, even now that we, I think that Biden kind of understands he needs labor. <laughs> um, yeah, he but, does, I think, I But hope. it's weakened. So labor is weakened right. now. And so going back, you know, full circle to your point about having... Um, the ability to, to to pressure through labor and through the Green New Deal and through through jobs programs at the local level all the way to the national level, when you have a weakened uh, when you have weakened unions, how do you do that? I mean, how do you build upon unions? How do you reform these unions? Well, first, well, uh, first and foremost, the a Biden Harris administration needs to put right on top of their agenda inside of that Green New Deal, workers' rights, hmm. okay? If they're going to do what they say they're going to do, and let's face it, politically, they're more likely to pursue a, a massive jobs program associated with a Green New Deal than they are passing laws that empower working people. The point is not to allow them to do one without the other. In other words, so Green New Deal is, is going to involve a massive jobs program, but it's, and a massive jobs program that must have as a, as a model for the rest of the nation, if they haven't yet enacted it in any, in a, by law, a $15 minimum wage to be involved in any jobs that are associated with the Green New Deal. But they must also include in it the right to organize and bargain collectively. They can right. build that right into any kind of Green New Deal. Look, the way, sorry, back in the 1930s, the first initiatives on the part of the Roosevelt administration, which were not nearly as 
progressive and social democratic as they would be in what was called the Second New Deal of 1935. Even in 1933, in the National Industrial Recovery Act, which actually gave certain kinds of powers to big business to try to recover from the Great Depression, they built into it a, 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 it's not a law in itself, but it stipulated that workers had the right to organize and bargain collectively. That was the first, that was like a, a mini Wagner Act that would become a serious Wagner Act in 1936. So similarly, that has to happen this time. And that, and that means, that means, by the way, that the left has got to get its agenda straight, which is why unity is so essential, because it must articulate and, if you like, put out in the public debate the things that we cannot allow Biden and Harris to fail to do. So when we say left unifying, um, yeah. we're not saying like democratic unity, like fall in line. It's really about what no, is. No, right. How do we pressure the Democratic Party as as a unit? How do we, you know, in solidarity say, all right, like. This is what's going to get this is this. So Obama made his version um, of Obamacare. Like that was his cornerstone. That is literally the issue of the Obama right. administration, right? And it's one of the reasons why I believe that you know Medicare for all became something much bigger and was more about Obama's legacy than than actually about Medicare for all and standing up to insurance companies. I, of course, insurance companies are extremely powerful, but I actually think so much of this hatred towards Bernie Sanders, hatred towards Keith Ellison, hatred is because of the challenge that certain people on the left did against the Obama campaign in shining light. Um, you know, this has been fully reported on. There's There was actual animosity. So I think in that point, like, the Green New Deal is is a safe space, too, because it's not something that the left went to bat over with the Obama campaign. And if we can win on that, then now you can win in other things. Whereas Obama, that was held up in courts, and he could, I mean, it was just, there was nothing else from there that he could go. Nowhere yeah. else for him to go. Does that make sense? Like, like he used all of his leverage on one piece of flawed legislation. Yeah, right. Which, which frankly, I actually thought the Supreme Court was going to find unconstitutional. But we can talk about that another time. Um, but but it, so now, so now we have Biden Harris. And by the way, just in terms of of the political realm, I actually think Harris is more susceptible to pressure than than Joe Biden. In a way, he he is he may verbalize his certain kind of commitments, but she is very ambitious. She is eager to be president, and there will be no future Democratic president if the Biden-Harris team doesn't go, everyone's using this term, go big, okay? that That's it. And if they're going to go big, they're going to have to go big in terms of the Green New Deal before they try to push through Medicare for All. Right. Although I would love to see Medicare for All immediately in in terms of the pandemic we're suffering. And by the way, and maybe there's yeah, maybe there's pandemic. I mean, even in the Green New Deal, in terms of, of the policy, maybe there are additional components addressing um, immediate medical care for sufferers. I, I don't know what that in between is, because even Medicare for all, it would still take five years to. to yeah, to well, fail. my my plan is Medicare for all kids immediately. I think yeah. it's a great plan. Um, Harvey, okay. well, I want to talk. Sorry, for, yeah, go, no, no, go ahead. Did you, we, we, we wrap it up real quick. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I was, all I was going to say is that the, the beauty of a Green New Deal massive jobs program is, and this goes back again to the New Deal experiences, 
those who might well have opposed any Democratic candidate would, or will seek jobs in the Green New Deal, okay? And that will bring together working people anew in a way they have not been brought together since, maybe since the 1940s and 1950s. And, you know, this has to be much bigger than, uh, what was the, the American Reinvestment Act? I already forgot what it was called, where they were building roads and and it really was, the money was allocated based on localities. And if you're a Republican uh, oh. controlled state or rural community, yeah. very curious how that money was allocated and those jobs were allocated. So we have to be much more thoughtful about it this time around. Okay, I just want to give a shout out to my friends in the chat. <laughs> I'll be there in moments. <laughs> Harvey Kane, thanks for joining us. Okay. See, see you in the you chat. You bet. you bet. Have a good time with my friends to come, okay? Okay. <laughs> thanks, Harvey. All right, guys, make sure to smash that like button. Uh, click subscribe. And if you're not a patron already, guys, you got to do it. Like some of these shows, I can't believe how many patrons they have. Um, we do not have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people on our list to, to email and bombard, and I'm really bad at pitching. So please join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We've got mugs too now, so you can buy those over there and at the Nomi Key Show.com. Uh, we will be back with Napoleon the Legend and Nando Vila. Welcome back. Oh my God, Harvey K just became a patron. I just got an alert. <laughs> See, that was such a good plug. Uh, if you are not a patron, go now, because you can join Harvey K, not only in the chat, but you can have <laughs> matching mugs, and I gotta get better at this, guys. <laughs> um, welcome back, Napoleon DeLegend, artist, activist, Recurring guest, you know him from the Michael Brooks Show, and Nando Vila, who is now a co-host of Jacobin. Congratulations, Jacobin Weekends. Um, you guys are doing a great job over there. Uh, Nando, you. of course, is is a well-known host, commentator on the left, uh, in left media. So, guys, I, I really wanted to focus today almost entirely on strategy of the left, because over the weekend, there, there was just... I was having, like, whiplash from 2016, like, we're three weeks before an election, 21 days before the election. And, you know, it's like, suddenly it's kind of, like, uncomfortable as a leftist to be talking about, like, voting, and it makes you feel like you're not cool to be, like, vote in the general election. But what I realized, I'll start with one point. I realized when I was challenging um, some opinions about staying home and 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 materialism from my perspective. Some of the responses were that well, Trump's not a fascist because my 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 articulation of this is we have to stop fascism, and now I'm hearing that Trump's not a fascist, and or he's the same as Biden or Biden's a fascist, and these are real conversations that are happening in the left. And I'm really hoping it doesn't make a difference in this election and that there is a, a wave, but. How, like, why are we eating each other alive right now? What's, uh, Nando, I'm looking, you're, you're like, <laughs> you know what this is. We were here in 2016. I mean, why do you think people don't understand the threat of Trump? Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that people, it's, it, I don't think it's so much the threat of Trump that is being kind of understated. I think it's more just a, um, a feeling that, 
we keep doing the same thing over and over again and nothing changes. And I, I'm sympathetic to that argument, you know, that, you know, when when you pull the lever for the Democrats, it's they don't really necessarily do anything to uh, change the broad trajectory of American politics, which is for the last 30 or 40 years been broadly a trajectory downward. Um, they sort of kind of manage the decline in a slightly better way. Um, that's kind of the, the argument. And I understand the impetus and the sort of libidinal um, appeal of that, that it, that we just like, we're looking at, at someone like Joe Biden, who in any other context would be like considered a, you know, center right politician. And that's who we have to rally around to stem the tides and the trends and reverse the downward trajectory. And the feeling is just like, that's impossible. Um, and then there's arguments that, for example, like when, when Reagan sort of tanked uh, Gerald Ford campaign in 1976 and let Carter win, and then he took over the party kind of four years later and really did like a, a massive sea change in American politics that at some point the left has to do something like that. I, I just don't think the conditions are completely analogous. Carter is not like is not like the left wing version of Trump. I mean, Carter was basically also like a center right politician, especially in the context of the time. He was a, one of the more right wing Democrats. Um, so it's a slightly it's a different context. But I understand the kind of libidinal appeal that, you know, they forced Biden down our throats. Nobody wanted him. Uh, and it, he is not just like kind of your standard issue Democrat. He has been traditionally one of the worst Democrats. Um, I mean, Biden made his career in the 1970s by being the first northern liberal to break on busing right i mean that kamala harris challenged him the case yourself like yeah. yeah exactly um and 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 beyond that like you know he he sort of fashioned himself as a tough on crime democrat in the 1980s outflanking the reagan administration on the right on that issue i mean um so i understand the libidinal appeal i do think that it, given the pandemic the sort of narrow argument that the Democrats will uh, administer the pandemic in a technocratically more effective way is, is an incredibly compelling argument. Um, and, and then other things like just that the conditions that allow for a left-wing um, change in this country, namely the revitalization of the labor movement, is practically impossible in, in the context of a far-right administration that is uh, putting NLRB appointees that are just like fanatical anti-unionists. You know, I don't, I don't think, I don't think uh, Joe Biden's going to name uh, Bernie Sanders as a labor secretary, but he'll name kind of probably like standard issue Dems who aren't necessarily like super friendly to labor, but aren't also like fanatical anti-labor activists who's like main raison d'etre is to destroy unions. So there are, there's different like conditions that, 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 that apply. And I think that the the arguments I, I have not been convinced um, by any of the arguments that say um, that a, a defeat of Joe Biden and another four years of Trump will actually be beneficial for the left in four years. I, I just I don't see it. I don't think the conditions on the ground are there. There is no um, there is no real power base yet. Well, capital the was on the side of, let's just be very clear, Reagan had capital. We don't have that. Like, yeah. And we don't have the strongest labor either. And 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 yeah. as you mentioned with Carter, Carter was the first, you know, modern Democratic president who really took a wrecking ball to labor yeah. uh, within the DNC and externally. So it's just it's, it's so much so that he was challenged by his by Ted Kennedy from the left right. Right. as a sitting president. I mean, imagine if that happened today. Imagine if like 
you know, Bernie Sanders had challenged Obama in 2012. Which he threatened, um, and that's why Obama hates him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Napoleon, I mean, it's... It, I, I find this this type this moment in the, the the electoral cycle, you know, repeat of 2016 it was painful in 2016, but knowing very well we're in a pandemic and the crisis that we're facing, you know, what do you think is a good issue that we should be unifying around? Like, if there is going to be some sort of solidarity on the left in in pushing back against Biden, what do you think that issue should be? I mean. I think there's several. I mean, I, th- I think, uh, you know, the, the climate change and something that looks like the Green New Deal, like with Harvey K, you know, was talking about is something that we, we should use our leverage to when it comes to if Biden comes at the administration, because it's out of the question if Trump is the winner. I think you made a good analogy earlier when you said it's like there's two vehicles. And to me, it's like there's two realities in, in 2021. There's the Trump America or the Biden America. So whatever you do, you're going to have to deal with one or the other. Which one you would you rather deal with? I mean, it's, it's it's as simple as that. And also, when it comes to the counter argument, and and like like uh, Nando uh, referred to, I understand like the disenfranchisement and the feeling that the two party system is useless. It's not. It's only helping like a small uh, amount of people at the top. But at the, on, the, on the other hand, it's like at least there's like a, a, a plan there. You know, when, when, when if, if we if we're saying that with, with, with Biden being at that top, we still have a way to organize and to leverage uh, a progressive interest uh, on, on him. Whereas on the other side, like if you vote, what is your plan? Like, let's say you want to vote for the Green Party or let's say you want to abstain and not vote for anybody. Then what? Yeah, like, I, 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 I have never heard like a cohesive type of uh, argument. Like where that reality, like what what's what are you, what are we doing then? Who, who's leading that that movement? What is that movement about? Like, and I, I just don't hear it. I'm sure there's some people thinking about it, but I haven't heard anything that's compelling at this point. Well, go ahead, Nando. Well, the, the other the other kind of argument that I think is a little bit more uh, subtle or a little bit more subjective is that I think that uh, Trump, in a way, drives liberals so crazy that. It, it makes working with them impossible, right? I mean, the the 2016 primary is proof of that. Like, they're, like liberals, like the vast majority of the electorate agreed with Bernie Sanders' program, but Biden was seen as more electable, and like the the top priority was defeating Trump. And because Biden was just, even though like, you know, Biden ran an awful campaign, like didn't organize at all, just the conventional wisdom that he is more electable because he's the vice president and because he's more moderate or whatever, that liberals were so scared of another four years of Trump that the only thing that mattered was Biden's electability. So like, if you've seen the last four years, like liberals are crazy. Like they're just crazy about like with Trump, like they, they, they go down all these kind of insane rabbit holes. There's like the, you know, the Seth Abramson type grifters who like become these huge celebrities amongst like suburban uh, women and stuff who are just like desperate to get this awful man out of the white house and it makes dealing with liberals impossible you know so it, it, there is a feeling that i have and it's you know there's no kind of real data to prove it or anything like it was just a feeling that from at least from a voter standpoint the context of another of a biden administration would make make de- defeating kind of moderate centrist Democrats at, at the at the congressional level or the Senate level, the things that are very crucial to build left power um, are more are easier to do in that context, right? When when there's the sort of awful threat in the White House, that becomes the the focus, you know. Whereas 
with a sort of standard awful liberal in the White House, but at least liberals will calm down <laughs> and not make the one focus that they want to do is defeating Trump. So that that makes, I think, uh, electorally, um, the, the voters may be more willing to pull the lever for someone who they agree with, but maybe suspect is not in some conventional wisdom type thing um, electable, right? So well, I think that- seeing- we're seeing yeah. folks like, okay, so Cori Bush, for instance, perfect example. Yeah. Cori Bush was a Bernie surrogate. She's knocked on the house. She is working class. She's radically left. But liberal women are like, oh, yeah, Cori Bush is great. And so they're, and of course, AOC is now having that effect, too. So, I mean, if you, if, if you're, there is a way that, like, they've been able to, we've been able to convince them through these, the more local electoral law. Basically, if mm-hmm. Bernie's name isn't on it, um, and you're not some sort of uh, emblem of the Bernie campaign, you're you, you've already brought in some of those liberals because they want to see more women in office. They want it's not that they're against what Cory Bush stands for, right? No, or who she is. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, and you're, you're seeing some of it. I, don't get me wrong. I don't think it's like a blanket, but I think you can see more of it in in the context of uh, you know in, in a sort of less heightened context where the stakes don't seem so high for liberals. You know, you can you can sort of convince people to uh, vote for the program that they already agree with. I mean, the, right. the, the sort of Broadly speaking, the Bernie Kratt program of Medicare for All, Green New Deal, all those things are in line with the Democratic Party electorate. The Democratic Party base already agrees with those things. The one issue where he lost was electability. And I think that that, this this idea that if you're more left, you're less electable than if you're in the center, you know, it's just just really deeply baked. And when there's the threat of Trump in the White House, that trumps everything else, for lack of a better term, no pun intended. But I mean, it's 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 it goes back to what Napoleon's saying. Like, so the Green New Deal, it's not just a leftist issue anymore. It is now something. No, sure. When you listen to some of these debates and you hear what, you know, Mayor Pete has to say about the Green New Deal or Joe Kennedy and you get in the weeds. Yeah, they're they're maybe subtly against the Green New Deal or just openly against Green New Deal. But generally speaking, these liberals that we're talking about are now are, are now on board on Team Green New Deal on Team Medicare for all. They may not be supporting all the candidates that support those things, but in terms of like what arguments were presented by the Bernie campaign and the movement, it's it's becoming more and more popular. So I think you know it's an interesting point, Nando, that like without Trump, you know, out there, they're going to be looking for their next path, their next thing to get behind. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's that's true. I mean, I think in a way, in a way, um, Trump. You know, it's like an old leftist thing. You got to heighten the contradictions, right? You got to heighten the contradictions. But with yeah. Trump there, it's it's much harder to heighten the contradictions, yeah. right? Um, it's it's just it's just it's much more harder to make that case to people. I mean, people, liberals, Democratic voters, understandably want this disgusting man out. Like, I I, I don't blame them, <laughs> you know. So it makes it much difficult to to do that. It's it makes, so, and that's a crucial thing. Like, we have to distinguish ourselves from the sort of standard issue liberals like they, they need to be defeated you know they are an impediment to change they absolutely are um and i just find it difficult i mean the, in the past four years are proof of that that it's difficult to do that because biden this candidate that like nobody really wanted like really nobody actually like was a huge biden head um won in a landslide i bought the <laughs> hat know? damn it <laughs> yeah Fine. a guy who could barely speak you know yeah. like he was barely campaigned he won in a, in a, in a landslide uh, because it was much harder in the context of Trump to heighten those contradictions. So what contradictions, Napoleon, like right now, next three weeks, if we're sitting here saying, all right, like we're obviously not the biggest fans of Biden. 
But I mean, this is why, coming back to the original point about fascism, you know, if it looks and sounds like a fascist, if he's threatening to not abdicate his position, I don't know what else that is. Right. And I don't know why we're suddenly having a debate over is Biden a fascist versus is Trump a fascist? So so if, if those are the two, if, if, if that's how we heighten the contradiction or that's how I'm heightening contradiction is that we need a popular front against fascism, you know, it's not for Biden, it's against fascism, but that's not sinking, then what is that? What are we, what are we distinguishing ourselves on right now? I mean, I mean, there's still COVID going on. It's like, like it, 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 when, when you look at you look at the the rally that happened the other day, and the way Trump is like, kind of jokingly talking about COVID, and maybe you're gonna talk about this later, but I mean, isn't that a sharp contrast? Like, do we do we really trust even Trump promoting his his vaccine? Like, it's it, yeah. it's like um, like 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 a salesman, like you know what I'm saying? And and like do. do there's that contradiction like that that co- we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic so people are gonna die people are dying every day by the thousands i don't know the actual numbers two hundred twenty thousand or something like that immediately that that i think that's a stark a contradiction between both of them right there that it will affect people that you know you know personally so it's like for for, for us not to 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 put them together like they're they're both two evils or whatever. No, they, they, there is a stark contrast between both of them. I think COVID is is, is an important thing. We're dealing with a, a big crisis that we haven't dealt with for like you know almost a century or something like that. And uh, and I, I think I think to me it's compelling because every I think people are suffering from it, if not directly, indirectly we are because of the way it's affecting our lives because of the, the mismanagement of it. We can't do what we want to do. Maybe this lockdown. Uh, 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 this whole, uh, all these policy, maybe the things could have opened up a, a little earlier or we could have had a better solution to it. And I think with, with a Biden administration, I, I at least trust that they would handle this better than yeah. what Trump is doing. Yeah, both things are true that, you know, after four decades of neoliberalism, these basic institutions that govern American life have been hollowed out to the point where it's it's difficult for even basic things to, to happen, basic things that other countries just take for granted. Um, like we can't even deliver unemployment checks right. in, a, in an efficient and and logical manner. Um, the basic just functions of the state have been so degraded that even like the best administrator possible would have um, would have like struggled to institute a coronavirus uh, response that was logical and reasonable. Uh, but it is also true that the Trump administration has grossly mismanaged the pandemic and that hundreds of thousands of people have died unnecessarily uh, as a result. Like, I don't think we would have had, you know, the Danish response to the coronavirus pandemic had, you know, Barack Obama been in, in power uh, during the pandemic, but it wouldn't have been 220,000 people. Uh, like, well, they would have looked at absolutely the CDC's would... recommendations to start. They would yeah, have just basic listened stuff. to the WHO yeah. in December yeah. to start. Yeah. I mean, as, this isn't rocket science here. Like, this is, they're there to keep the state neutral, to keep it just, 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 just enough so that people aren't out on the streets, which of course they are, and they have been. Um, okay, so that leads to my last question about just being out on the streets. Um, Trump, you know, George Floyd protests, uh, the Women's March, uh, labor movement, uh, you know, there's 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 a slew of different movements that have shown up on the streets since Trump has been elected, and it has not moved Trump at all. And it's barely moved. Maybe there's some local races. It's moved 
uh, the the neoliberals a little bit more to the left on certain issues, like saying BLM out loud. The fact that that was a controversy like eight months ago and is now, you know, at the Democratic convention. Great, great progress. Can't believe it took that much to do it. But <laughs> it doesn't seem like showing up on the streets is really pressuring the Trump administration, has pressured him at all. He just ignores it. He, he follows his own rules. But... Where will these movements, I mean, especially in terms of like Black Lives Matter, do we see, how do we see them responding to a Biden administration um, with Kamala Harris in it? How does this continue? I think it's yes. going to keep going. Yeah. I think it's going to keep going. I, I, I mean, look, that's when it's, the, the pressure starts because that's going to be the true test. It's like, especially since somebody like Kamala, who's who's like, you know, with her prosecu- uh, prosecutorial background and Biden, one of his main critiques is the crime bill. Mm-hmm. When, when when you talk to a lot of like black people about Biden, people bring that up a lot. So I think that's going to be, I think the pressure is going to be on to see if they really could walk the walk when it comes to that. I don't think it's going to let up. And especially, I mean, we don't want any, any occurrences like a George Floyd or a Breonna Taylor to happen again. But if these things keep happening, I don't think it doesn't matter if it's Trump at the helm or Biden at the helm. People are going to take the streets to protest this because people have had it. You know, this, this is something that's been going on for years. So I, I, I don't see it landing up in any type of way. Actually, it's going to be the proof that's going to be if the Democrats have, could prove something it will be that they could address something like that in a substantial manner. Will they do that, yeah. Armando? Well, I mean, they won't unless unless they feel like they have to pay the price. And And I think that um until like i mean we've seen like you know joe crowley fell and uh um El engel fell and those are powerful ho- house democrats and stuff but like if a, like a powerful senator um was primary and lost uh, as a result of something like this it would really scare uh a lot of people in the democratic party um you know they're really going to meaningfully move democrats i think most of them kind of realize that they could think that they can just wait it out and and survive that kind of uh, pressure it's when they start feeling some sort of cost. I mean, you think about like, I mean, just look at California, right? Like, I mean, LA, uh, it's been democratic forever and well, not forever, but for a long time. And um, California is run by Democrats. And, you know, the LAPD is still one of the most violent, awful pol- police forces, and they, they, they're powerless to stop them, you know, like until there is like a real uh, cost and a real fear um, of the left. Like, I mean, they're never going to like do it out of the goodness of their heart. Um, I have no illusions of that. I think that, that, you know, that there's two things that have to happen. One, like a big Senator has to fall, um, to a sort of left-wing challenger. Um, and the left has to flip a red district somewhere in, in, in an unexpected area. I mean, I think that that would also send a, a tremendous message. I mean, so far, the, the sort of left challengers have had success in, in blue districts, which is great, and that's we sh- mm-hmm. that they should absolutely continue doing that. But there sh- there needs to be a resounding kind of flipping of a red district somewhere um, to start the seeds of something else, like an alternative power base, you know that 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 can really start to threaten the party establishment. I, I think that I think that you're right that if some if if another black man gets killed on the streets by the cop under a uh, under a Biden Kamala administration, there will be massive protests on the streets. They will listen a little bit more in the sense that they won't like actively, you know, call for like the, the murder of protesters and stuff like that. But um, but they won't meaningfully move until they feel threatened. I mean, that's the only thing they respond to that's right. is power and threats. 
And but even that, and I mean, you look at Mayor de Blasio, you look at Mayor Garcetti, de Blasio even more so as as the man who ran on, on racial equity and a tale of two cities, uh, yeah. completely beholden to the NYPD, which is- So cucked. So crazy. <laughs> He's the most exactly. cucked guy ever. That's but, crazy. But then he Eric Garcetti his own too. daughter. I know, I know, my God, they dox his own daughter. But that just shows you the power that they have. Like, what do they have on him? What do they have on Garcetti? I mean, Garcetti, he's always been neoliberal, but and he's advising the the Biden campaign um, on 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 you know, the vice presidential ticket, for instance. He was yeah. a key advisor in that. So, you know, you, you have Democratic cities where there was there have been pressure points, have been protests. Millions of people at this point have gone to the streets in protesting, and still, their hands are tied. And they just wait for it to go away, the new cycle to blow away. So I'm hoping, I mean, even just just my own, my my goal, my wish is uh, whoever is attorney general, and that could be Andrew Cuomo, uh, he's in the mix right now, I know, that they investigate at least the Proud Boys, that they start somewhere and they start to make a case because that road starts to lead into the NYPD where the FBI was already investigating, or not just NYPD, but, my, but other um, police departments around the country. You got to do something real. You got to follow the money a little but bit. I mean, you actually have to take them on. Even internationally, it, I think it looks so bad for America when 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 everybody is seeing all these people take the streets and being up in arms with everything. Everybody everybody's rallying towards the same cause. Like everybody stands for the people. So, I mean, once again, I they, like you said, I don't know what they have on 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 these people where they can't they can't make a, a bold move, but. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping some could be done. I mean, they essentially went in New York. They essentially went on strike and like, uh, you know, like a kind of quiet strike, you know, where they just like stopped doing their job. They also like threatened him personally, <laughs> you know, like the other day they protect the mayor, you know, they're his muscle. And if they're if they're starting to threaten him personally, like he must feel terrified uh, crazy. in some way. I mean, like, it's crazy. It's crazy. Like they're so out of control. Um, and, and a lot of that is they don't live. Most of them don't come from the city. They don't come from these communities. They come in from different communities. And so they don't feel that. Well, they can't afford it. Right. I mean, that's one of the problems with like city centers becoming so unaffordable for. That's right. Working I mean, class, can, middle class people. Can, can, can't they fight like the, the people at the top of the police? Like to, 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 to fire the police chief? I don't know. I don't know how these things of work. Course. It's like they need to gut that whole the, the, the leadership that the that, them. That, the policemen are employees. They're going to have to do what their leadership tells them. I think it's it's at the top. There's something going he's, on. Where... He's tried. I mean, I'm not, they've gone through police chiefs, and it's still um, none of it. It's it's much more than a cultural shift. It's much more than training. Um, this is a whole conversation that we could spend an hour on. But it's you have to keep in mind that like there is actual white supremacy being organized within the police departments, and it's being investigated by the FBI. And I say this over and over and over again on my show because they're intrinsically related. And until we're willing to confront that openly as Democrats, as mayors of the city and investigate it, then we're going to have this problem because it's, uh, you know, listen, it's not, we're not, it's not just here. It's, it's internationally too. Golden Dawn, 40%, 40% of the police in, in Greece voted and they could do this based on the polling sites because they were at the police precincts. 40% of the police force in Greece voted for the Golden Dawn which is a party in Greece, which is, was just convicted last yeah. night, right now, convicted for murdering someone, a neo-Nazi group. And they have 5% of the vote. So basically they just have the police vote. So that yeah. just shows you how related these two things are. And, and I, you know, I think that's a pressure point that the Democrats, mainstream Democrats have to be willing to openly talk about um, and confront what these illusions of, of, of the police are. Um, guys, I love you. 
We're way over on time. Uh, you're the best. Thanks for sticking around. Nando, thanks for joining us. The last time I Thank saw you. you on the show was when we did a live event in I know. Los Angeles. When Bernie was murdered by, uh, by uh, the forces, you know, the man. That was the on night. Super Tuesday. That was a real yeah, fun night. Was it was awesome. supposed to be fun. <laughs> It was supposed to be funny that he got murdered. Like, and Pete and, 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 and Amy dropped out, and it all, you know, oh. it was crazy. Those days were just, I mean, thinking yeah, back on it. It's the beginning of the end. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Hopefully. Uh, Napoleon, thanks for joining again. We will thanks see you me next on. week. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you for joining. We will see you tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern. Also, we have a special, speaking of the Golden Dawn, um, I did a very long interview with a reporter in Athens about the trial of Golden Dawn. Um, that's going to be going up. Make sure to check it out here on the channel at the Nomiki Show. It's an hour-long interview. Uh, super, super, super interesting. You're definitely going to want to check it out. And uh, make sure to hit like, like, and subscribe. We will see you tomorrow. Thank you.